cannot judge me. So funny. <laughs> you can't judge me. Have you ever had those words kind of kind of levied at you? Uh, when you try to speak to someone about a situation in their life, about something that's going on, and they say, you can't judge me, Christian. Uh, your word says don't judge, so, so don't judge me. Sometimes we even hear that from our brothers and sisters as we interact with one another and we seek to admonish a fellow Christian to speak to something in their life that may be wrong or harmful. And oftentimes that statement is thrown out. You can't judge me. And it's thrown out kind of, kind of as a, a conversation ender, right? It just it stops the, the conversation in its tracks. You're not allowed to cast any judgment on me, so stop. It means you can't speak to my life. You can't tell me if I'm in sin because, the, because God's Word says that we're not supposed to do that. The question that I want to ask today is, is, is that really true? Is that what the Bible teaches? I just want to say that, that, that I'm... I'm a simple guy, and I just want to know what the Bible teaches about any given topic. Right? That is, this is where we find truth. I appreciate theologians. I appreciate church history. I appreciate ministers that God gives the church, but only so far as they help us to understand what the Bible actually teaches. So the question before us today is, is that what the Bible says, that we cannot ever judge as black and white and there it is. That is the question that we have before us. Our text is in John chapter 7. If you have your Bible, uh, would you turn there? There should be Bibles in the chairs around if you need one. The, the burgundy ones are large print for those that are visually challenged like myself. And the black ones are just kind of uh, standard. John chapter 7, just to briefly remind us where we are. Jesus is in the temple. It is the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. And He is right there in the middle of the temple. And about the middle of the feast, He stood up and He began to teach the Word. He began to preach to the crowds. And we saw last week that believer and unbeliever alike, they marveled at His words. They were, they, 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 they were taken aback by the way that He taught and by the things that He said. We talked about the power of His teaching. We talked about that it has power because of its source, right? He speaks the very words of God. But the crowds are always grumbling. They're always questioning, right? Always, they always have very different opinions about who Jesus is and what He's come to do. And He does what He often does. Is he turns to them and He asks them a question. Or he, he challenges their thinking today. So we're going to look at this text, uh, and that is John chapter 7, and we'll begin in verse 19. John chapter 7, verse 19. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Now let me remind you that just six verses before this, it said that the crowds didn't speak openly about Jesus for fear of the authorities because they were trying to kill Jesus, arrest Jesus. All of a sudden, they don't know that to be the case. So they're, they're, they're mocking Him, kind of, who's going to kill you? Right? You have a demon, they cry out. Who's looking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work 
and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. John clarifies there, circumcision is in the law of Moses, but it was actually given 500 years earlier to Abraham. Not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? What's he saying here? What is he, what is he getting at? What's the point he's trying to make? As we've seen in John and as you will see all throughout the Gospels, one of the major contentions that Jesus has with the crowds is about Sabbath. They call him a Sabbath breaker. He tells them, you don't understand the Sabbath. And that's the tension that they often have. And and he's doing the same thing here. He's calling them out for their hypocrisy. Right? He says, so the law of Moses says that a child is born, a male child, on the eighth day of his life, he needs to be circumcised. That's the law. But what would happen is that eighth day would fall on the Sabbath. So what would they do? They'd make an exception on the Sabbath they would circumcise the child and keep one law, but break another, at least in their mind. Jesus says, you do that. You're okay with that. That's no big deal. I heal a man's body. I allow a paralyzed man to walk who could not walk, and you call me a sinner. How in the world does that make sense? Is that not a contradiction? Right? Are you not being a hypocrite? Now let me just clarify that his point is not it's okay to break the Sabbath sometimes. His point is that these things are not breaking the Sabbath. God's command was that the Sabbath was a day of rest from worldly labors, and it is a day of worship to God, right? Rest to God. Not that every single thing that you could ever possibly do is sinful, so sit in your chair and don't move, lest God judge you. Right? That's a burden placed upon me. If all day long on the Sabbath I'm questioning, if I lift this, is that work? If I move this chair, they had rules like that. You can only move the chair four feet in the house. If you move it eight, that's work, and you're in sin. That's ridiculous. That's not a day of rest. That's a day of burden and worry, right? And, and condemnation on yourself. No, the day is stop all the worldly stuff. Stop all that. Worship God. Rest in Him. That was the Sabbath. And Jesus constantly trying to clarify, it's not how you understand it. Neither one of these things breaks God's law. Because they're not really work. So he speaks to their hypocrisy. And then he he makes this statement in verse 24. And I want to focus on this one verse mainly today. 7.24 Do not judge by appearances. Judge with right judgment. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. The question that I want to seek to answer today, there's two. And it is, what does that mean? then how do we do it? What does that mean? And then how do we do it? If we stay here, it's hard to really know. He just says, judge with right judgment, and then he moves on. The question we have for Jesus is, what does that mean? How do we do that? What does it mean to judge with right judgment? He didn't say don't judge here. He said, when you judge, judge with right judgment. So what I want to try to do is go to some other places in Scripture today Try to unpack what it means to judge with right judgment. If I can first just give you the, the definition of this word judge, it comes from a Greek word, krino, 
and it means to decide a question legal, right, or wrong. Or to determine the innocence or guilt of someone. So it's just like we think. If I cast a judgment, I'm saying that's good and that's bad. That's sin and that's not. That's holy and that's impure. Right? I'm making judgment decisions in my mind about something. I want to try to answer this question under three headings. The first is what I believe actually a call to judge in the Bible, a call to judge. We'll talk about that. Uh, number two, what is the biblical teaching? What does it mean to judge with right judgment? And number three, then some biblical wisdom to kind of help us in this endeavor. So number one, a call to judge. Now let me, let me just be clear what I do not mean here. I do not mean that the Bible calls us to be critical, mean, judgy, uh, Christians that go around pointing out everyone's flaws all the time. That's a sin, that's a sin, that's a sin. Your shirt's too high, your pants are too low, you're this, you're that, whatever. It's not at all what we're talking about here. There's plenty of those Christians, and we don't want to be those Christians. <laughs> it's not what we're talking about. But I believe there is a call to make judgments about people's lives. First passage is Matthew 18. Matthew 18. Uh, this is Jesus' explanation for us uh, about church discipline. Church discipline. Has anybody here ever heard the, the statement church discipline? Some? Uh, some? Sometimes people hear that and they think, isn't that what cults do when they shun people and, and tell them they're scum and put them on the street? No, that is not at all what church discipline means. And Jesus helps us understand it here in Matthew 18. Uh, and we'll start in verse 15. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So the first step, if someone is, sins against you, if someone is caught in, is to go to them one-on-one. -on -one, right? You and that person, go to them, seek to reconcile that relationship. And he says, if you have, sorry, 15, 18, if they respond, if they repent, if they restore the relationship, then praise God, you've gained your brother. right? You've won them back. But what does that require? That very act requires me to make a judgment about their life. Hey, that thing that you've done is wrong. It's sin. You've hurt me. You've offended me. You, you, you've sinned against me. You've done something that was wrong. So he calls us here in this act to make judgments about people's life. Not to go around talking and gossiping about people but to go to someone and point out the thing you did is wrong. Right? The thing that you did is wrong. And oftentimes in the church, as soon as we do that, people just put up their wall and say, you can't judge me. Back off. It's not your business. But here Jesus exhorts us to go one-on-one -on -one to try to resolve issues. He goes on. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So here we have this call. If they don't listen, if they won't be reconciled, to get a couple brothers or sisters from the church, whether it's a pastor, whether it's the elders, deacons, people you trust, whatever, and go to them and try to resolve the issue, try to reconcile the relationship. So what that means is if you're in conflict with someone and, and you've tried and you've tried and it hasn't been reconciled, and then they come to you with another person or two, they're not trying to bully you. They're trying to be biblical. 
They're trying to do what Jesus has taught us to do to resolve conflict and sin in the church. He goes on. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So if this issue does not get resolved one-on-one or with a group of people, he says, bring them before the church and treat them like a tax collector or a sinner. What does that mean? Jews hated tax collectors and sinners. Does that mean that you bring them before the church and mock them and treat them, ridicule them? No. He means treat them like an unbeliever. Preach the gospel to them. Call them to repent. They're hardened in their sin. They refuse to turn from it. They need to be treated like someone who needs to turn to Christ and be saved because they're living, the way they're living is not in accordance with their profession of faith, but they say that they're Christian. This is what we call excommunication. It doesn't mean you're out of the church. It means you're barred from the Lord's table and we're treating you as an unbeliever because you refuse to repent of your sins. Most of that's another subject for another day, but the point here, for this passage to make sense, I have to make a judgment about life when I go to them and say, hey, you've sinned against me, you hurt me, you offended me, it's wrong, let's deal with it, right? So we see here that Jesus calls us to make judgment calls about people's lives. Turn back a few pages to Matthew 7, if you would. Matthew 7. So this is the passage that's usually thrown out. I've heard many times, and we heard a minister say it yesterday, that, that the one verse out of the Bible that has been commonly known historically is, is probably what? Anything come to mind? The verse everyone knows that most of us could probably recite. John 3.16, right. But today, this verse may even be superseding John 3.16. It's Matthew 7.1. Do not judge. And people just kind of throw this statement out, this blanket statement. Don't judge me. The Bible says not to judge. That's it. So let's read it. Matthew 7, verse 1. Judge not that you not be judged. Well, that's pretty plain, right? Don't judge. Why am I even preaching this sermon? He said it right there. Well, the problem is he keeps talking. He keeps going. So verse 2. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So he's warning you. If you go and cast judgment upon a person... You better be willing to receive it back. You better be open to the same correction and admonishment. He goes on in verse 3. He gives us this this illustration. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, the piece of sawdust, but do not notice that there is a log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first, Take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, he's not really talking about logs and specks per se. It's an illustration, right? If I'm walking around and there is a branch poking out of my eye, and I'm hitting people with it, and it's and I go to someone else and say, hey, there's a little tiny speck in your eye. i got to get that out. And they're saying, you have a log, right? You have a branch thinking out of your head, why in the world are you telling me about that piece of sawdust? But we're not talking about branches, we're talking about sin and issues in people's life. And if I have this glaring thing that everyone knows, and I'm going around pointing out people's little specks, little things that they need to deal with, 
you hypocrite. Deal with your own issue first. Get that log out of your eye before you think to go to someone and remove their speck. But notice what he says. He doesn't say don't go. He says, take your own log out and then go to your brother to remove that speck. And for me to do that, for me to go to someone and say, hey, there's something in your life that's wrong. There's a speck in your eye. There's an issue that I see. I have to make a judgment about their life, right? I have to make a judgment about their behavior. To some degree. How am I going to point out an issue if I don't say this thing is wrong in your life? So the call there is not don't judge, but it is a warning. You better be able to receive back whatever you give, and you better get your own affairs in order before you go around telling everyone else how they're wrong. The third example, I want to turn to the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians. It is just after 1st and 2nd Corinthians. In the New Testament, Galatians chapter 6, another call here for us to go to our brothers and sisters when they're having an issue and they're in sin. Galatians chapter 6, in verse 1, God's electric power company, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, so if you're Past, if you're in one of those other books, go back a little bit. Galatians 6 and verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you to be tempted. As you say here, he says, you who are Spiritual. You who are, another translation says, godly or walking by the Spirit. So you who are walking with the Lord, you who are faithful, if you see a brother or a sister in a transgression, caught in a snare, struggling in sin, go to them in a spirit of gentleness. Why? To seek to restore them. But again, what does this require? It requires me to go and cast, make a judgment call about someone's life. To say, Erica, I love you. This thing in your life, it's not helpful. It's, it's bringing you down. It's, it's hindering you. I want to help you. I want to see you restored. But, but you have a problem in this area. You're wrong. None of these passages make sense if the Bible teaches you just can't judge anyone. I think we can see in these passages, he calls us to, to, to make judgments about people's life, but he calls us to do it in a biblical and godly way. That is a call to judge. I want to kind of refute that thinking that the Bible just says, never judge, that's it, case clear. It seems to me that it teaches us to judge, but in a specific manner and for specific purposes. So that's point number one. Point number two, then, is what is the teaching? What does it mean to judge with right judgment? What does that really look like? I'm going to use those same texts and pull out some some uh, things that we can learn. Number one, biblical teaching. What does Jesus mean when he says, judge with right judgment? I think by and large, this has to, this has to, to be the theme of it all. If I'm going to go to someone, it's got to be done in love. Right? It has to be done in love. When I think about Matthew 18, when Jesus says, if you've got a problem with someone, go to them. If they won't listen, bring a couple brothers. If they won't listen, bring, make it public. Bring them before the church. All of that is about 
love for that person, right? I have to go to them with right motives. If my motives are wrong, if I'm just angry and want to lash out and want vengeance for the thing that they did, then I'm not going in love. I'm going because I want to see retribution, right? I want to see punitive damages brought upon that person because they wronged me or because they wronged that other person. But this whole idea of going to someone, of admonishing, correcting them, has to begin from a place of love. Uh, Let me give you an example. If there's a group in the church and someone says something that is demeaning about another person kind of publicly, that person feels less and small, and then you're, you're that person and you're kind of resentful and bitter and getting angry and and saying, I gotta, I gotta go to that person. I gotta, I gotta fix this thing. They need to, they need to know how I feel. I'm gonna show them what that looked like, how I felt, how I was hurt. Am I going there out of love? Or am I going to them out of retribution, out of justice? Now, now those feelings are, are, are proper, right? They're, they're, they're natural. But I think the call, when we see all of these examples, is that we would approach a person out of love. Love for them, love to see them reconciled, love to see them restored, not just to go so that they can feel uh, the same sort of harm that I felt. So Number one, judging with right judgment must be done first in love. Number two, as we just learned in Matthew 7, it should not be done hypocritically. It should not be done hypocritically. As Jesus said, don't go to someone with a log in your eye to tell them about speck in their eye. If you have this glaring sin, these glaring issues, and I seek to go to a person who has some small thing going on, he says, you've got to get your own affairs in order. Uh, An example here, there's a brother in the church, and man, he's, he's just really harsh with his wife, you know, publicly. And the way he talks to his wife, it's just, it's demeaning, it's rude, it's belittling. And, and you know how that feels. People see it, and everyone is awkward when, when that happens. And it's just, it's, everyone feels bad for her. And I go to him. And that's good, right? We should go to that person. We should seek to, to speak to them. And I go to him, and I say, man, what you're doing, it's wrong. Everyone sees it. You're hurting her. But if I'm got my good church face on, but I go home and I'm demeaning my wife, I'm belittling my wife, I'm treating her harshly and rudely, and I have no business going to that brother and correcting him in his sin when I have this glaring my own life and my own heart that I haven't dealt with. But I want to give a little disclaimer here on this point, a little disclaimer, and that is that I think sometimes we take this principle a bit too far, right? We definitely should not be critical when we go to exhort a brother or sister, sometimes we tell ourselves, I'm not perfect here, so I have no right to speak to anyone about anything. Who am I? I'm a sinner. I've done this in the past. I'm not a perfect husband. I'm not a perfect wife. So I have no business speaking to anyone about anything because of this area. The reality is, none of us are perfect in any area. Right? We're all, every step of our sanctification is imperfect. Every character trait that I have is imperfect. Right? It ha- it's, it's tainted with sin. I want to say this. We need, we need 
brothers and sisters, that will love one another enough, that will love one another enough to go to someone and say, listen, I'm not perfect. I don't have it all figured out. But the way that you're living, the thing that you're doing, the way you're treating her, it's wrong. And I love you enough that I'm, that I'm willing to come and say the thing, to, to, to expose this thing and to seek to restore you. So we should definitely not be hypocritical, but at the same time, none of us is perfect. And we need brothers and sisters that would be willing to come and admonish us out of love. Number three, I think this was clear from all of those passages. Uh, it's always about restoration. We go to a brother or sister and, and seek to speak into their life, to admonish or correct them. It has to be about restoring them. Matthew 18, why does Jesus say go to your brother to restore that relationship? Why does He say to get two more if you won't listen to restore that relationship? Why does He say bring them before the church that they would repent and be restored into right fellowship? Matthew 7, when I go to someone to get the speck out of their eye, why am I doing that? What's the purpose? It's to restore them, to help them, to build them up, to, to point out that thing in their eye that's harming them give them relief. And then Galatians 6, the same, that was the heart of that text. If you are walking with the Lord, if someone's transgression, go to them. Why? That they would be restored. Not, not to go to them to, 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 to speak ill of them, but to go to them to bring restoration so that they would be restored into right fellowship so their life would be helped. Uh, an example of this is there was a group of ladies on a hospitality kind of team, right? And a new lady comes in, and she was kind of a big shot at her last church, and she does it all, and she knows it all, and, and she's kind of taking everyone's jobs and making plans and doing everything on her own, and some of the ladies are getting frustrated. And, and one lady goes to the pastor, and she says, hey, this person, she needs to be reprimanded, and she needs to be removed from this community. She needs to be taken off. Right? Does that come from a, a place of restoration, trying to trying to restore and, and mend this relationship, or is that simply about retribution? Right? This person is wrong, and I want to see them punished for their crime. I want to see them dealt with. Now, in all these examples, we've seen that it's always about restoring the person back to a proper place. It's all about helping them, not about harming them. And number four here, this comes straight from our main text in John chapter 7, verse 24. Uh, we need to look beneath the surface or not judge by appearances. The NLT, I like the translation there. It says, don't judge wrongly, but look beneath the surface. Sometimes uh, we are just way too quick to assume Right? We don't give people the benefit of the doubt. We assume the worst in them. We want to hammer them. We just want to come down on them. Hey, i got to point this thing out. You're wrong. Example here is there was a brother who has a past of, of addiction and alcoholism, and he's in the church and doing well. Uh, and they go to him because I see there's some, there's some things in his life. He's acting different. He's not coming to church as much, and that's not normal for him now. He's distant when he's here. He's cold in worship. He's not answering my calls, and I just assume he's using it again. 
You know, that's what it is. He's back on the bottle. He's using again, and I'm going to go, and i got to call him out. Right? i got I to point out his sin because I want to help him. And then I go to him, and he tells me that his marriage is struggling. His, his wife is shattered. The relationship is severed. He doesn't know what to do, and he's, he's hurting. I didn't investigate. I didn't look beneath the surface. I just instantly assumed the worst, assumed that it was sin, and went to him, and I was wrong, and, and probably harmed him in the process. So Jesus tells us that we must look beneath the surface. We must judge not by appearances, but we need to investigate, consider our brothers and sisters, assume the best of people, and be patient. So as we have this charge from Christ to, to judge by right appearances, uh, we've seen uh, what that looks like biblically, that when we approach someone in this fashion, uh, that first it should be done in love. Number two, it should not be hypocritical. Uh, and number three, it needs to be done with the intent to restore. Right? With the intent to restore. And again, for any of these texts to make sense, we have to be making judgments about people's lives. Not to demean them, not to tell them how terrible they are, but to come alongside and admonish them and love them enough to say the hard statements. And the Bible gives us guidelines how we should do this in a godly way. And that brings me to the last point, uh, and that is some biblical wisdom to help. Just some, some practical application, what we can pull from some of these stories and from the Bible what should it look like when I, when I go to someone? If I'm going to go to someone in the church and say, listen, something's wrong. Whatever that thing is, I want to, I want to point it out. I want to tell you I love you, and, and you need to correct it. How can I come alongside? How, what can we learn from these texts? I think the first thing is that we must tend to our own sins before the sins of others. We must tend to our own sins before the sins of others. We saw this in Matthew 7. Remove the log before you try to take out the speck in someone else's eye. I don't know how you operate. I only know how I am. And I know that for me, it's very easy for me to see your sin. I can see it on the surface. I can point it out. That's pride. That's anger. That was very selfish. Uh, it's easy to see sin in other people. But when there's a mirror at me, when I'm looking at myself, it's very easy to justify it's very easy to minimize my own behavior, to rationalize why it's okay, why I have an excuse to be like that or to act like that. So I believe any time that we go to someone, we must be willing to take an honest account first of our own lives. We talked about this in the men's breakfast in Second Peter or First Peter two, where he tells us that we should put away malice, envy, hypocrisy, slander. How are we to put these things away if we don't take an honest account of our lives and consider, am I, am I acting like this? Is that how I'm living? Before I go to someone else, I need to take to my own sin. Number two, as Jesus said in Matthew 7, uh, we must be willing to receive the same judgment that we dish out to others. We must be willing to receive the same judgment, correction, admonishment that we dish out to others. Uh, we all know that person that loves to go to everyone and point out their sin, their weaknesses. They're happy to be the first one to say, I'll tell them. I know that they're wrong. I want to point it out. They need to hear it. I'll be the one to do it. But heaven forbid if you ever bring any correction back the other way, 
because they can't receive it at all, right? And, and we all probably have some of that in us where it's easier to, to give it out, to point it out, than it is to hear it. It's hard to hear our own flaws at times. We've got to be willing to, to receive that same correction. We've got to be mature enough to, to be open to say, you know what, you're right. I'm wrong. If I'm, if I'm going to set this high bar for others, then I need to be able to, to be held to that same bar. Uh, number three, give others the same grace that you give yourself. Give others the same grace that you give yourself. Unless you're a perfectionist, and if you are, you have your own difficulties there. Uh, but unless you're a perfectionist, most people hold themselves not to a perfect standard. Right? We allow ourselves some slack. We understand that we mess up, that we're not perfect, that we're going to fall short. And I would say that it's good and wise and proper to extend that same grace to others. That I wouldn't expect more out of a loved one or a spouse or a friend than I expect out of myself. That I don't hold my child to a higher standard than I hold myself. And I think I would admit that I'm, that I'm guilty of that it's easy for me to say, yeah, Brett, you've worked hard. It's okay to slack here in this area today to take it easy. But when it comes to Haley, my 16-year-old daughter, these are the rules. They're black and white. Do what you need to do. There's no grace. Right? I give myself a little bit of grace. Um, but I'm unwilling sometimes to share it with her. And Haley, I just threw you a little bone there. So. <laughs> Number four. Uh, in Matthew 18, right? So we talked about if there's an issue and, and you can't work it out, you have to bring in someone else. And we need to heed that advice. But I want to say we've got to be careful whenever we bring in an outsider to a situation. What are my motives? Right? Do I really think that Jim is going to be able to help Joe and I resolve this? Or I just want to go to Jim and spill my guts about how mad I am, how frustrated I am, how wrong he is, and how much everyone else needs to hear why he's wrong. What is my motives for bringing others into a situation when it's about someone's, right? I don't know how many times I've heard the words, we really need to pray for so-and-so, and that was followed by a bunch of gossip. And we really need to pray was just a way to say, hey, now I'm going to spill this person's business in front of everyone in the church. And then lastly, and this is key, any judgment brought before another person needs to be done through the lens of the Gospel. Without the work of Christ in us, all of this stuff we've talked about is simply work of the flesh. It's just me uh, doing things for myself, but we must always remember that we are sinners. Only deserving of God's just wrath. But in His great patience and in His great kindness, He has accepted us in Christ. We don't deserve this grace. We haven't earned this grace. God didn't look down and see how great it was going to be and then He chose me. He saw me in my sin. He saw me in my folly and my rebellion and my rejection of Him. Yet in His grace, He has saved us in Christ. We have all sinned against our Creator in word and Deed, after knowing Him, even after being forgiven, yet He continues to love us. He continues to accept us. And may that great grace, may that great reality shape and form any conversation 
we may have seeking to correct or admonish a brother or sister. May I never forget my own failures, my own shortcomings, and my own sin when I go to seek to speak wisdom to a brother or a sister. Uh, So what have we learned? Well, we saw Jesus exhorting the crowds to not judge by appearances, but to judge with right judgment. Whether you're judging Him like they are from afar, going to someone uh, to seek to point out a sin or to bring correction, uh, what we've learned, what that really means, is that it needs to be done in love. It should not be hypocritical. And it's always about permission. And let me just close with this. The church at large, but let me say specifically, this church needs Christians that are willing to do this. I need Christians in my life that will love me enough to admonish me, to come to me, and to correct me. That will look into my life, that will investigate, not just assume the worst, but that will look beneath the surface. And when the time comes that I need to be addressed, will come and say, brother, the way that you're living is wrong. The way that you treated that person, the way that you spoke to her, the thing you're doing with your wife, whatever it is, is wrong. And I want to see you restored. I want to, I want to help you in this area. That is the sort of family environment that we need to foster more and more in the church. Not mean, critical, judgy Christians that go around pointing out everyone's little flaw, but those that love one another enough to say the hard things that need to be said for the holiness and purity of the church, for the glory of God, and for the good of our own souls. And may God grant us all the grace that we need to receive that admonishment when it comes our way. Amen? Let me pray.